Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. You don't want to be one of those people that like uh, you, you spend your whole life saying, you know, I, I really always wanted to, but I never did. And so that was just the impetus where I said, I, I got to do it. Obviously, America is so politicized right now. And if you do spend an, an extended amount of time in a different country, you start thinking of yourself as a citizen of the world. And then you spend a little bit more time just observing instead of being obsessed with what's going on in your country. I just said, like, look, you know, I'm super busy right now and I don't know where, where I could fit something like this in my schedule. But let's keep in touch and see what happens downstream. And so we finished the meeting and then they, they left. And <laughs> one of my employees over there looks at me and he goes, what the hell are you doing? He goes, that's Louis Vuitton. I go, I know, I just turned fashion, you can't be too available. Available, available, available. What's up, everybody? Today on the show is Shane Baum. I am super excited to have him on the show because he represents one of the best lifestyle brands in the world. So when you think of work and play, he definitely leans on the play side. Now, the reason why I wanted to have him on the show is because his background is so different to the life that he lives now. His background is from the cornfields and tractors of Iowa. The life he's living is hanging out in the south of France and hunting pheasants with British royalty and teeing off at St. Andrews. So he is one of the most fascinating guys who's really built an amazing company that's all around lifestyle and play. So I wanted to sort of like, we talk a lot about work on this show. Now I wanna move and talk a lot about play and there's nobody better to do it than Shane Baum. So please enjoy this conversation with Shane Baum. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you kindly. Thanks for having me on. You are so welcome. I'm super excited to have you on the show because you live and really are 
the lifestyle brands that a lot of people dream of. And uh, our mutual friend, Kayla Kraft, has ins- uh, assured me that we have uh, a lot of things in common. And uh, in doing some research, I see where, uh, where she was going with that. So we're going to dig into all of that stuff. So I- I'm really excited that you're here. So thanks for taking the time to do this. Awesome. I- I'm excited to be here too. All right. So I'm going to take you back to Belmond, Iowa. Do you remember that place? Yes, Belmond, a uh, town of 2,500. 2,500. You've come yeah. a long way since Belmond, Iowa. That is the, uh, the town of, uh, of uh, cornfields, tractors. If I were to sort of take you back to that time and ask you, uh, did you think that you'd ever be hanging out in the south of France or, or, uh, or hunting pheasants with British royalty or teeing off at St. Andrews? If I would have stopped you in the streets at the, at the Kmart and told you that, what would you say? I would say it was seemingly impossible. Um, <laughs> yeah, seemingly impossible. You know, you're talking a, a town that has uh, one grocery store, uh, two gas stations, and four tractor dealerships when I was growing up. So it was pretty uh, not super exotic. Yeah, and as we'll as we'll get into uh, in, when we start talking about sunglasses, you can't see yourself selling those sunglasses to the tractor guy, huh? Well, I, I think it's a um, it's a good perspective of just kind of understanding that that there's a lot of different ways to go through life uh, depending on uh, what you're passionate about, and uh, so yeah, I, I could still make glasses for guys that drive tractors. Okay, maybe we got a whole <laughs> new John Deere thing. <laughs> I did do a collaboration with John Deere at one point with a, with a different brand that I was working on. And so, yeah, I think it, it gave me a little um, hometown credibility. That's parents, really interesting. My parents are pretty happy to take the, uh, the John Deere glasses that I did with a, a brand called Paul Frank uh, to all their friends. I know Paul Frank. I don't know him personally, but I know the brand for sure. And I want to talk about your parents a little bit. In what ways did your mom, uh, Sherry, and your dad, Don, uh, instill the appreciation for the arts and, you know, sort of like curate this wanderlust that you have now? Yeah, I think, you know, my my mom, I mean, first of all, uh, the family calls her sister Mary Sherry because she does uh, nearly everything perfectly. And so I, I think that when she had, you know, two young boys, it was her thing of like, you know, how do I put a perfect life together for them? And so, uh, you know, she was a, a full-time mom, but uh, on the side, she was a choreographer. And so I, I think I saw every Rodgers and Hammerstein play on the planet, you know, before I was like 15 years old. And the mom always was just a planner. And so she'd be like, okay, you know, we're going to take the kids to, you know, Hawaii or Acapulco or um, wherever the, you know, the place that would be fun to, to to spend the winter was and they would save up all year and, and the vacations were a big deal and so it kind of made me realize that you know i could go to an airport and depending on what gate i went through uh you could end up nearly anywhere in the world and so i learned that at a pretty early age isn't that fascinating i, I like i still because i travel so much i still not so much, obviously, when I'm in the domestic airport, but when I'm walking through the international airport and I, I pass gate 53 and it says Paris and 54 is Berlin. And it's just like, you know, you're, you just get this giddiness that is like, what is on the other side of, you know, even with, you know, being in the back of the bus on the plane and it's not perfect and, you know, all your shit's all falling apart and TSA makes you, you know, do a, you know, a rectal exam before you get it. It's still, it's still exciting, isn't it? 
<laughs> it's super exciting. I love walking down the airport and going like, I've been there yet. You know, like I need to put that on my radar or, or sometimes you see one, you, you see uh, something on the international side. And you're like, I don't even know where that is. You know? Right. Exactly. Machu Picchu. I have no idea. Okay. So let's, um, let's dig into this a little bit. Can you tell me the story of heading West Sounds like go west, young man. Heading heading west to California, and how uh, a little Italiano named uh, Massimo Giannulli—I probably butchered it—entered um, your life. Uh, yeah, that was an interesting one. Um, so, yeah, mom drives me to college. I go to school up in the Bay Area, Bay Area and um, my best friend that I, you know, latched on to early in the time. We both loved to surf and. Uh, and his parents had uh, a beach house um, down at in Laguna Beach. It's a place called El Moro. Uh, there's no homes there now, but it used to be trailer homes back in the day. And it was like the coolest trailer trash like place on the planet. And a lot of people had beach homes there. And so uh, when I went down with my college roommate um, for the summer, um, we would play volleyball on the beach. And yeah, I met a dude named Mossimo. And so when I graduated, he... Uh, he said like, look, you know, I'm hiring people in the, in the warehouse right now. Do you want a job? And of course, with a degree in industrial technology, uh, my parents weren't super thrilled that I was going to go to work in a warehouse, but I just said, you know, like, Hey, I got to pay the bills for now. While I'm going to get a real job. And so, yeah, I, uh, I learned to fold t-shirts and started with, uh, that company, I guess in the, in the mid nineties. And, uh, we went from about 10 people in that company to about 300 and, when we were going through the whole process of, of growth and everything, you know, I, uh, Mossimo said like, geez, you have this kind of fancy degree and it seems like you're wasting it. Um, I'm going to start an eyewear division, which seems slightly more technical. So, um, why don't you go ahead and head up the, uh, the eyewear division? And, um, uh, yeah. And so, uh, there was two people in the division. Um, I run the ba- ran the back of the business. So, you know, I answered the phone and fixed the glasses and, but at the same time, learn to import and export, manage goods, cost of goods sold, and all the things that I would kind of need to start a business later. But yeah, the company uh, grew up to about 300 people. Um, it went public on the New York Stock Exchange. We were all young and silly and flying around in planes and trains and automobiles. And yeah, it was a great uh, learning experience. Let's go back there a little bit. What kind of business was that business? Yeah, I need to go slower um, with some of this stuff. That business was uh, an apparel business uh, that made um, volleyball shorts and t-shirts in the beginning and ended up becoming a lifestyle brand. Uh, Ultimately, uh, the brand went through, uh, I guess, a 15-year growth pattern and then ended up being the brand that most people have seen in Target, uh, I guess, over the last 10 years or so. Well, the brand in Target, tell me the name of it in Target. What's it called? It's Mossimo. It's Massimo. Okay, but right. that's not the same as Moschino, right? That's yeah, different? Yeah, no, no, it's not the Italian fashion brand. Yeah, so it's okay. it's, a, it's a couple rungs down for that. I, I actually honestly don't know if it's in Target anymore. It's This is, okay. kind of a, this is about a 25, 30-year run, something like that, that the brands have been around. Before we, you stepped out on your own, you actually worked within an eyewear company that you were involved with, and it was... It was something that you, you started to mention did really, really well. I mean, you guys shot up and you did great, but it also shot down and it also did not do so well. What did that drop in stock teach you about business? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I just really learned that, that, um, that 
when you're a young company and going up and you have talented people, um, more talented people go to work for the companies and they might have, might have, not have the best experience, but it's the energy and the execution. So you might have a guy that, you know, is just, uh, he was a good skateboarder and he ended up being like a brilliant marketing guy because he knew what the kids wanted and, and he was hyper-focused and a workaholic. And so then I learned, you know, when a company goes public, you know, they might say like, well, Mr. Marketing Skateboarder Guy, you've done a great job to get it uh, this far. Uh, but now, you know, we're going public and we need real executives in here. So you're going to report to, you know, Mr. Such and Such, who came highly regarded from Calvin Klein. And it's a much bigger brand and he has much more experience. So you now report to him. And I really realized that a lot of that magic that was in the bottle was kind of emasculated, um, you know, as the company uh, went public. And so I learned way more on the way down that, that a lot of talent was kind of put in the corner. And a lot of mediocre people that had good resumes were put in control and uh, the magic was gone. Yeah, it's interesting. Some some of the magic is um, sort of difficult to define in the beginning. But once you get it, you know, once you lose it, you know, you know, you, you know that it's gone. So you made a decision to step out on your own and you headed to Newport Beach to surf, among other things. And you wanted to uh, to brainstorm a new business. What was the triggering event that made you say, I'm going to go out on my own here. I want to do this myself. Well, <laughs> truth be told, I got fired. Okay. Um, the that's only, well, that's a triggering been, event. <laughs> well, it's the only time I've been fired in my, in my life. I, I just got back from a trip to Indonesia and I guess uh, the timing uh, didn't go over so well with the owner of the company. And so, yeah, I was just uh, watering my spice garden the next morning. And I'm like, you know what? I hated my job. I wasn't learning anything. And uh, I'm just going to go it alone. And um, and so uh, there was just that moment where I was uh, living relatively lean, and uh, you just uh, said like, "Hell, I'm going to give it a shot." You know, you just you don't want to be one of those people that like uh, you spend your whole life saying, "You know, I, I really always wanted to, but I never did." And so that was just the impetus where I said, "I, I got to do it." You know? Okay, so when you decided to do it. What exactly were you after growing? This was an eyeglass company, yeah? Yeah, correct. I just said like, you know, I've kind of learned every part of the eyewear business from, you know, design, sales, marketing, manufacturing, uh, support, inventory, customer service, all of that. And so I just said like, you know, I'm going to start an eyewear company and I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be. I don't know if I'm going to license other brands. I don't know if I'm going to put my name on it. I'm not sure exactly what it's be, what it's going to be, but yeah, as of today, uh, I'm starting an eyewear company. Now, do you do you find when you're when you're visualizing or when you're creating your goals, do you get lost in the how you're going how you how are you going to accomplish your goals, or are you more of a big picture guy that says, yeah, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do this thing, but 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 I know what I want and it's going to unfold the way it unfolds. Like, where are you with, you know, sort of like manifesting what it is that you're after? Yeah, I think for me, it's like putting into, you know, trusting that, that good projects are going to come up and that um, good energy and good work will result into the next thing. So, yeah, it was one of those ones when um, when I started the company, I knew the guys at Paul Frank. They had uh, started the company with about six guys and I kept in contact with them. And all of a sudden they were now at you know, about 60 people. So their company was, in, you know, enduring a lot of growth uh, during that time. And so I just said, like, you know, why don't you let me license your brand and I'll make eyewear for you. For you. And so that was kind of the first impetus, the, the first project that I worked on when I started the company. Okay. So 
This is an interesting question, and I'm not sure how to how to ask it, so I'm just going to say it. When I'm sitting next to somebody on a on an airplane, and I see that they have a fifteen twenty thousand dollar Birkin bag, and you know I'm I'm on my way to Italy, and I know that the leather in that bag is as good as the leather I'm going to find in Italy, and I could probably buy the leather for I don't know a, a one one thousandth of the price. What is it that makes a lifestyle brand like a Louis Vuitton or a Birkin bag, like an Hermes or something like that? What is it that makes people willing to spend a thousand times or more the value of what they're actually holding? Like what, what's the psych, what's the psychology? Is it they want to be part of a tribe or, or, or how do you think about that? The way that I think about it is is the way that you that I think about food. I mean, there's quality of ingredients and in everything, and you know, the, to get a certain kind of truffle or to get a to get a certain kind of wine that's really at the the upper echelon of excellence. It's just the best of the best. I mean, there's a, there's an associated cost, and there's also scarcity of supply. And so, I always think about those things like you know, why would it be worth it? And I start thinking about you know, like kind of like work in your life in reverse. You're like, at the end of it, you know, like, what are my children going to uh, take away from whatever I've accumulated during the course of my life? And they will keep a vintage car or a vintage motorcycle. They will keep a Birkin bag. They will um, keep these heirloom pieces that you chose for them because A, they're meaningful because you owned them and B, the quality of them is so good that they will last forever. So, I mean, it's, it's like the coolest investment ever. You're like, I'm buying this once for, for my family forever. And so with that mindset, so when you, I think you make those decisions. Okay. So when you design something, even uh, eyewear, you're thinking about that sort of longevity of the product. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, when I created my brand, uh, Leisure Society, Leisure Society um, right when I had uh, finished um, an extended career um, designing for Louis Vuitton, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time in the, in the, uh, uh, Vuitton family house going through their archives. So it really set the mood for me of like, you know, they had been making products for, you know, over a hundred years and it started setting that mood for like, well, if you wanted to make something that was really like the best of the best, what would it look like in a hundred years? And so if you make every decision based on that as a, um, as a goal, it's easy to make decisions. You know, you're like, what's the best pot? What's the, what's the best lenses? What's the best plating that we could do? What's the best materials to make the glasses from? So every single process that we made in creating Leisure Society was just based on, you know, heirloom design and how could we possibly make something that with the intention of it lasting forever. What did you do for Louis Vuitton? I was uh, uh, the only um, American designer other than Mark Jacobs that was hired by the company. And I was um, tasked with uh, designing their eyewear collection. And that was which years? I guess that was um, 2006 2000, yeah, kind of 2004 to 2006, right in that era. So you get this call somewhere in the mid 2000s where somebody says, "Hey, we want you to, we want you to come over to us and design eyeglasses." That's got to be. I will never get that phone call in my life. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to call me from Louis Vuitton and say, "Design these anything." That I'm must gonna... have been. Go ahead. <laughs> There's a funny little story for that. And it, it, Go ahead, you, tell me. you were setting it up. Um, we, we were at a trade show in Paris. And so, and we had a few other brands that I was designing for. One was the uh, uh, Munzingwear original penguin brand yep. out of New York. And we, we were doing Paul Frank. And so those were getting some no- notoriety and 
so the booth was really packed at the show and we had this like phone book stack of orders and we were all high-fiving and you know the, the champagne corks were flying and uh and i had had a, a vintage record player there and the music's like cranked up and so we almost have this like party going because at the end of the show so they go shane there's some people here from lvmh that would like to talk to you so they said like look um you know i guess mark jacobs had seen some of the work that i'd done on this eyewear um and he wanted us to contact you and um how do you feel about uh you know do you own the company are you available for hire this that or the other and so i just said like look you know i'm super busy right now and i don't know where where i could fit something like this in my schedule but let's keep in touch and see what happens downstream and so we finished the meeting and then they, they left and <laughs> one of my employees over there looks at me and he goes what the hell are you doing he goes that's louis vuitton i go i know i just turned in fashion you can't be too available and oh so, my god yeah. that is so funny and so yeah. obviously you then got the call and said you know we'll sweeten the deal come come meet with us and we'll 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 make it worth your while and then you decided to take the gig yeah and i took the gig and i i will say like you know i know that this um podcast is called work hard play hard but i took that interview so seriously you know i i read everything I could about the company. I, I dressed, um, I, you know, put the outfit together, you know, like a week in advance. I didn't drink on the plane on the way over for once. You know, uh, I, I uh, tend to get hot when I get in a, in a nervous situation. I mean, I went to the interview with the windows down in the taxi cab trying to get as cold as I could. So yeah. I didn't perspire when I was kind of under the, the questioning. And so I took the interview very seriously. And, and um, yeah, I got to get And where did you do the interview? Was it in Paris or Italy? It was in Paris. It was in Paris. Yeah, at I their can... headquarters. You know, God bless the French. Everything is great about uh, France except the French, right? They're they're not so easy to deal. Let's be honest. As as great as they are, they're not so easy to deal with. I can only imagine what being interviewed by somebody like a Louis Vuitton brand, like what that had to feel like. Yeah, no, they're definitely looking uh, up and down from your shoes to like how you know what how you're dressed, your how you're accessorized, and it was. Um, yeah, it was a pretty thorough interview. Uh, it's funny that you say that about the French. Uh, I, I remember one time at, at a, uh, I was uh, late for a flight, and the the person at the counter who was French um, seemed to find joy in telling me that my ticket ticket was worthless, and, then, and that's what reminded me when you said like the French are difficult sometimes. They're, they're just they're. I mean, like I I I love them. I want to love them more. They just don't like us that much is really what it comes down to. It's not, I don't even have a judgment about them. I just know that they have a judgment about me. I've spent many, 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 many uh, trips in Paris. So I, I, I speak to it and I have tons, I have tons of French friends. Uh, one time I was at a dinner party and I said to him, I got you know just drunk enough where I said to him, what the hell's going on with you guys? Like, why, why do you hate us? He said, please, listen, the French don't even like the French. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> I, like, I, I love like, that. I love that. Like, the French don't even like the French. It's Some like, sort of Napoleon complex for all of them. It's like, oh. okay. All right. So now you now you got that thing rocking and rolling, and you are doing that for a year. What ways do you think that training there or your experience there served you to go out on your own and do your own thing. Like what did you learn from there that was uh that's that you still use? Yeah, just a lot of discipline. You know, they were um, you know, when we finished the frames, the prototypes would go to the lab to be um tested for quality control. And if they didn't pass, um, they just didn't make the season. And it was really like I'd never been in a company where they said, like, oh no, 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 we'll just um 
well, this will go out next year instead. And you're like, I, we can't wait for a year, you know, like we need to be on trend and it needs to be done. And they're like, they're just very patient and very methodical and very committed to their craft and, and making sure that um, things are done perfectly, you know, and, and their reputation is more important than anything. And uh, so that's really what I, my takeaway was. So they're, they're, they're willing to forego the American quick buck to make sure that they have a legacy product there. Yeah, 100%. Well said. Yeah, cool. Okay. Tell me, I, I once watched this show on 60 Minutes about a company that you're going to know called Luxotica, right? Yeah. And I, I knew I was going to get a smile as soon as you heard that word. And if I, if memory serves me correctly, they're doing 95% of every piece of eyewear that's on people's faces in the world. Is that right? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, they're the uh, 900 pound gorilla in our industry. And besides owning uh, the license uh, to some of the most um, prominent fashion houses in the world, um, they also, you know, own companies like Ray-Ban and Oakley. And I mean, they're, they're massive. And then I don't even know what the current door count is in, in the U.S., but at, at one point it was 8,000 doors of vertical retail. So when you go to Sunglass Hut, when you go to Lens Crafters, when you go to Pearl Vision Center, um, when you go to Costco, all of those are just owned by one company. It's pretty crazy. How, how did that happen? How is there no antitrust oligopoly, you can't do this <laughs> law that broke the baby bells apart? Like, how has this not happened? <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I think... Um, there has been some discussions about, you know, antitrust issues, but I mean, the bottom line is like, they just became really powerful and they were really good at what they did. And Mr. Del Vecchio, um, you know, who founded the company was great at getting all the couture brands because they're all based in Italy and France. And so once he had all the fashion brands under his roster, you know, they were very aggressive in, in expanding their, their vertical retail. And they were just really great at what they, they did uh, during the growth period. And so they're massive now. Although I will say now that there is um, a movement right now of people, they, they, they call them independent eyewear dealers. And so you run into people and they go, no, we don't carry any Luxottica type products or licensed brands. We only work with independent eyewear companies. So there's a small movement coming up now. Okay. So when you make your glasses, do they go to Luxottica to be made? No, no, we don't use any of their factories. All of our stuff's made in a, in a, in a region of Japan um, called Fukui, which is about two hours inland uh, by train from uh, Osaka. Uh -huh. and so, yeah. So you do uh, it in Japan. Why did you choose to do it in Japan over Luxottica for the, for the, um, for the uh, piece that you mentioned earlier about sort of the, um, what's the word? I guess heirloom, right? Is that the word you're sort of like? Yeah, yeah. heirloom. Yeah. We call it California heirloom design. Um, truthfully, um, most of the Luxottica factories um, are not available for, for outside manufacturer. So I couldn't really even use their, their factories if I wanted to, nor would, would I wish to. Most of their stuff, uh, I might get in trouble for saying this, but um, most of their stuff has a lot of pre-production, I would say, in China. Uh, and then oftentimes it's finished um, in Europe um, for the couture brands. And it's, it's a well-known fact um, for most people. And if you tour to the factories, you do see um, products that are you know, made in Europe out of those Chinese factories. Is that but, the same for, uh, for bags like purses and things like that? I don't, well, 
I can't comment on that. I'm not an expert and and I don't know. I, I know okay. that I, I can say hand to heart with Louis Vuitton that there, there's there's never a company that has more integrity than they do. I mean, they for certain, you know, everything is made in in France and and I would tell you, I mean, I you know, uh, I convinced them I um, to work with a factory uh, that we currently work with in uh, in Japan. It was one of the first times that they had done production outside of uh, France. I think it was the first time that they had done pro- production outside of Europe. Yeah, not France, but uh, Europe. So it was a big deal for them to work with a Japanese manufacturer. Okay, so you are you're a lifestyle guy, right? You you want to live. I see why our mutual friend Kayla wanted us to connect. You, you're all about having having a great life, right? You want to have great, beautiful things around you and lead a great life. You're in, you know, one of the most, you know, while California is is being sort of looked at as North Korea these days for a lot of reasons, <laughs> it also, you know. It's uh, it's like I said to uh, I said to a buddy of mine. It's like uh, he said, "How's living in California?" I said, "It's like having a a crazy hot ex girlfriend that you love that you, you, you stay with her because the sex is good, but she, but she's crazy. Like that's <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of how I see where I'm living right now. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's idyllic and beautiful, <sighs> but damn, that bitch is crazy. You know. Yeah. So the the question I have for you is you strike me as somebody that probably is in love with all things Europe, right? Italian and French and that sort of like La Dolce Vita kind of vibe, you know? Yeah, a thousand percent. Uh, I will say just in general that I like things that are tested by time and and have meaning to them. And so, uh, yeah, I'm very much just into history in general. And yeah. Um, and the, and the exploration of, you know, the evolution of, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. I named my, named my company Leisure Society, if you don't mind me going on a, on a quick no. tangent here. No, um, tangent away. But, but, when I, <laughs> but when I started studying, I mean, this paper has been written about the ev- evolution of the Leisure Society. And um, it was basically like during the Industrial Revolution, when people actually started leaving their homes to go on holiday, um, that, that it was a completely new thing, and people people don't know that 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 before there was trains and and steamships and stuff like that, you just kind of stayed at home, and you maybe you know like got your horses together and went to the countryside or to the mountains or some somewhere like kind of within a a day or two's travel time. But other than that, you didn't go on holiday, and so the whole evolution of going on vacation and uh, you know if you read books about it, it's it's a very interesting study the evolution of the. Uh, uh, leisure society and and the the, uh, the author's name is Verbalum, and yeah, it's a good spend of time if you if you want to read of just saying like, what do you mean people aren't haven't been going on vacations forever? And you're like, no, they haven't. That's really really interesting. Now, you have you ever lived in Europe for an extended period of time? Yeah, I've lived in in a um, Vienna for a summer, and uh, and I, I spent uh, I don't know, call it a half a year in London also. Okay. Would you ever find yourself moving to Europe where, you know, where you can live for, I don't know, get a villa in Tuscany, maybe at some point in your life. Do you see that in your future? Yeah, a hundred percent. And and that's one of the things that I will say about, obviously America is so politicized right now. And if you do spend an, an extended amount of time in a different country, 
you start thinking of yourself as a citizen of the world. And then you spend a little bit more time just observing instead of being obsessed with what's going on in your country. Because, you know, I mean, and even, you know, even if people are upset with the US right now, I mean, within a day's drive, you can make it to Mexico or Canada. So you got options. And um, I don't know. So uh, I, I can see myself uh, spending a lot of time over there specifically, you know, and like I said, T- Tuscany couldn't be better. You know, Austria, I really fell in love with. It's just on the northern end of uh, um, the Italian border. And so, you know, you have Venice right there. You have um, Cortina and the, the Italian Alps, you know, Alta Badia. You have the lakes, Lake Como and Garda and Maggiore. You have um, yeah, Switzerland right next door. I mean, and it's and magnificent. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I just yeah. did right before the pandemic, uh, we were in, uh, we did a week at the, uh, the Mandarin in Lake Como and it's, uh, it's right across the street from Clooney's house. Unbelievable. It was I, like, I, I, there's no words for it. And, um, a, a good friend of mine is the general manager of the hotel. And, you know, so we got, we, we got some behind the scenes stuff of, you know, the, the town and, and, uh, on the, on the lake, et cetera. But, you know, I wrestle with, I wrestle with, and the reason why I'm talking about this is a lot of people listening to the show are in points in their life where they're, they're recognizing, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm 40 years old. I'm 50 years old. My life is roughly half over. You know, I don't know how many good years I have left, you know, maybe 30, maybe 40. And how do I want to spend them? Like, what am I interested in? What am I passionate about? Where would I like to be? And, and one of those things that comes up a lot is Europe. And I am, my wife and I are in the process of my, my grandparents came over from Naples. So we're in the process of getting Italian citizenship. And, you know, that gives us the freedom to be able to stay in Europe for a prolonged period of time. So we tested it. Yeah. We tested it last year and we did four months in Florence and it was, I mean, it was every bit of what you would think living in Florence was like, it was incredible. I mean, it was absolutely incredible, but I don't have the ocean. I don't have the surfing. I don't have the <laughs> California 72 degree weather. And so it's like this, you can't have it all. You can't be in California and there. So I think maybe the balance is a couple months and, you know, maybe, maybe summers in Europe and maybe the rest of the year here. I don't know. Well, what do you, how do you think about that? Do you think about that I, at I all? think about it again, if you kind of like read some like, you know, well-heeled healed authors, you know, like a Hemingway or something like that. I mean, by the, you know, it's not like, you know, for our generation to figure out there's people that have already figured it out. And they said like, yeah, if you can spend a, you know, a summer or two in the South of France, if you can spend some time, you know, like wrestling Marlin down in Cabo San Lucas, if you can, I think, you know, I think it's important during this uh, whole pandemic when things were locked down. And I, I certainly was like moved into a place where I felt depressed and recognized it. And I, I think it's just so important for anybody, like you said, who's halfway through life to just sit there and go like, if you're not feeling good, at least get the calendar out and say like, well, where could I possibly go? And even, you know, where we are, even if it's Palm Desert or something that's when a, in a day's drive, you know, like um, the Santa Ynez, um, you know, to go wine tasting, wherever like that, you just got to get out and you have to like try to um, fill the, uh, you know, I, one of my favorite quotes that I made up, um, this is um, egocentric to say, but uh, I always say nobody wants to die with a thin biography and it's up to you to decide how many chapters you want to put in it. And that's so, great. That's yeah. really great. It would only be egotistical if you referred to yourself in third person. If you said Shane's, <laughs> Shane, Shane has a quote. So, uh, you know, it's funny you said Cabo with Marlon. I do, uh, I do events around the world. And as you can imagine, being in the event around the world business during a pandemic is 
not so good looking right now. Um, but yeah. we 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 did pivot and uh, we did go to Cabo. Um, I took uh, fifteen people to Cabo last week, and I got to tell you, man, it was a breath of fresh air to get out of this lockdown um, and feel for a moment that this world was not, you know, sort of the world that we're in right now. You know, I, I'm going to talk to you about the, uh, the the Royal Leisure Society in a second, but I wanted to tell you something that just popped in my head. I remember uh, I was in Italy and I was at a bar and we were, we were talking about uh, Americans. It was like, we were having a couple of Negronis. We're all, you know, half toasted and and uh, the, the bartender like looks at me and, and he and he's he's like shaking his head and he's laughing and I'm like well what are you laughing at? He said oh, Americans and I said well what do you what do you mean? He said you're like Britney Spears. I said what I said what the hell does that mean? He said you're like you're like 16, 17, 18 year old like dumb girls. Do you know what I mean? Like you haven't you haven't lived long enough. You don't really know what it's like to be invaded by, you know, German tanks. You don't understand how important it is to live. And you're always complaining and you're always worried about money. And, and you're not putting your family first and food first and flirting first. And, you know, and, and I was like, he just went off on this whole thing. And I was like, there's something to the fact that we're 200 years old and they're 2000 years old. Their DNA has recognized recognized value for life. And I think we get really lost in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm super on that DNA um, type of mentality now too, where I'm like, look, you know, 10,000 years, you know, like, man, we leave the cave, you know, we try to bring home, um, you know, some sort of beef so that family feels safe and secure, you know, and the wife kind of goes out in the meadow, meadow and, you know, like kind of picks the fruits and berries and stuff like that. It's that whole DNA thing. I, I think there's just a lot of truth to it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's dig into what the Royal and the ancient leisure society is it sounds like some sort of underground movements what is it why'd you come up with it what do i need to know about it it's funny that you mentioned that because i've always been a big fan of um you know secret societies and stuff like that and uh i'm not like a conspiracy theory guy but i i always kind of like you know kind of going um looking at you know secret societies and, and and whatnot so anyway you know coming from a small town belmont iowa 2500 um, you know, mom has a box of wine in the fridge and, and I'm making more money in Southern California and starting to experience more things. And somebody once coined the term, uh, culture vulture, because I kind of realized when I came out here, um, being a, to California, being a wholesome Midwestern kid. And I realized that like, I could go to punk rock concerts on the weekend. I could go to the ballet on the weekend. I could do a lot of different things and I didn't have to let any one of the cultures define me. I could just be a culture vulture and take them all in. So anyway, when, when things started going better in business, I started putting some, you know, beautiful itineraries together. So I'm like, you know, Rob, good news. The limousine's going to pick you up at eight in the morning and whisk you off to breakfast the four seasons. From there, you'll take your first class coach down to opening day at Del Mar, which has been a tradition you know, since the 1930s, you know, Hollywood royalty would go down and, and do that. And so it was a really like fabulous itinerary, itinerary that I'd put uh, together. I uh, used all the connections I could to get good box seats at the opening day. And then coming from Shane from Belmont, Iowa, uh, didn't seem fancy enough. So just on top, I, I, I wrote, by order of the Royal and Ancient Leisure Society. And so 
Leisure Society outings um, from then on started becoming, it would just be really interesting. I'd, I'd send it out to a group of friends and I'm like, hey, we're going lawn bowling this weekend. It's another Leisure Society outing. And so whenever it was cultural, you know, it was an event that was tested by the annuals of time. You know, uh, it just, they became Leisure Society events. So when I had uh, finished um, uh, my term at LVMH and launched my own brand, my mentor said like, look, your resume is not going to get any better. Come out with your own brand. So I'm like, Leisure Society by Shane Baum. I and, love uh, that. Yeah. I love that because, you know, Shakespeare said what's in the name, right? A lot. So that's, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So you're really living this th- lifestyle brand. In fact, not only do you surf and are you a culture vulture, but you play polo. So how the heck do you play polo? I can't even ride a horse. How do you ride a horse and, and get that, get that thing in the, in the, in the, what is it called? The, the net. What, what do you get? The gold. It's just between the two goals. Yes. Between the two goals. Yes. All right. Um, how do you, how do you, how does one pick up playing polo? It's, it's a random thing because I mean, I, I grew up around farms and horses and stuff like that and uh, never had any interest at all. And, um, so, but what I did have an interest in is, um, raising my children in, you know, like a, a lifestyle It's probably like the same way as my mom, you know, like I wanted to give them some sort of, I don't know, upgrade from, you know, like Belmont, Iowa or anything else. So the, the girls, um, my children, uh, they're 16 and 19 too, but, uh, at the time they were 12 and I'm sorry, 11 and eight. And so they loved horses. They were obsessed with horses. They loved riding horses. So, you know, I'm a couple margaritas deep at a, uh, a wood racket tennis um, tournament. And there's a silent auction there. And it says lessons at the Orange County Polo Club. And I'm like, geez, you know, it'd be kind of nice if my girls played polo since they already know how to ride horses. And that would be something that would be, you know, kind of a, a time-tested, you know, age-old sport of kings. And it would be really fun for them. So, I called to the Orange County Polo Club here and um, uh, Heather, who still runs the program, says, uh, no problem. They're all set Thursday at um, 4.30. Um, she goes, uh, this lesson's for four people, you know, and uh, if you want a lesson too, you could join. And I was just sitting there thinking, and I'm like, well, I'm afraid of horses. I don't know what I'm doing, but it beats sitting in the car. So I'm like, I'll do it. So I got there, um, you know, with my Chuck Taylor tennis shoes and the helmet on all sideways. It was like a bicycle helmet. And I didn't know what I was doing. And my children started heckling me. They're like, Papa, you're terrible. You know, like, get your feet down, get your heels down, get your shoulders back. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, your pop Scott's, you know, how's this? And so we're riding around and, and uh, they're teasing me. But then we went to hit the ball and it's a lot like the golf swing. And I've been an avid golfer my whole life. So I could kind of hit the ball a long ways. And like, well, Papa, you're like a professional like ball hitter. And so you're pretty good. And so I'm like, I had my niche, but I was terrible at riding horses. So you know, one lesson turned into six and six turned into 12. And, um, and Heather tried to call and cancel because of rain one day. And, uh, I just said, Heather, come on, you know, like we can go up on the hill. It's gotta be dry up there. Or, you know, we can go, what about the covered arena? She goes, Shana, there's no polo in the covered arena. And I said, well, geez, you know, like who owns it? I'll call them. And so eventually she said, look, look, I don't mean to be rude uh, right now, but I'm going to hang up on you. And so she hung up the phone. I'm like, oh my God, I am so addicted to this sport. And so, yeah, I had to learn from scratch. I mean, how to, how to um, take care of horses, how to put saddles on them, how to trailer them, how to uh, give them shots, you know, all of it. And I did it with my girls and with the family. And then a few years later, um, uh, my wife joined. And so like, we're four people that absolutely are obsessed with horses. We love the sport. And, uh, and also like, uh, we spend a good deal of our time bringing our friends into it saying like, Hey, this is 
totally accessible to you. We can have lessons. I'm taking a group out next Thursday. You know, if you want to go, I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, it's definitely piquing my interest for sure. How often are you playing now? I play during the season, um, uh, twice a week. And then, uh, since the off season right now, um, everything starts out in Indio, um, January through March. So right now in the summer, the horses were turned out means they're on vacation a little bit. And so they can get fat and just eat hay and stuff. And then now they're being what's called brought back up. And so they start jogging again and training. And then as the training gets closer to the game days, they will be what's called singled where like a professional or myself will take them riding to make sure that they're tuned up and ready to play. And the season starts in Indio in January. Well, I'm definitely uh, with the horses. I'm turned out right now, so I've I've got to <laughs> I, I got to do a little bit of work before I get there. So I'm I'm going to wait for my uh, wait for my invite on the Leisure Society and maybe maybe meet you for a mint julep or whatever it is that uh, that you fancy polo players drink on the side of the uh, court. <laughs> is it a is it a, cor- it's a course? It's not a court. It's a course. Uh, it's a field and um, fields. See, yeah. And they they, they yeah they uh, the games are made up of chuckers that are seven and a half minutes long. And, um, yeah, there's six of them, um, with about a five minute break in between. When you talked about mint juleps, it made me excited because I forgot the masters is next weekend. That's exciting. That's, well, I came from Atlanta, so I'm, uh, I'm right, I'm oh. right there with you. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, listen, I am going to run through a quick speed round with you and then we're going to wrap up. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Uh, compassion. Do you collect anything? Uh, fly fishing rods. Interesting. What's the one thing you want to get better at? I really want to get better at polo. I mean, it's all I think about now. So that's a, a boring but easy one. Okay. What's your guilty pleasure? Whiskey. What's on your nightstands? Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Last question. What one question would you like to ask me? Well, uh, how did you start uh, doing your podcast? Um, I just really love being a culture vulture. And it's my new favorite word, phrase. And uh, I love interviewing people. And I love learning about what they're doing. And I love to find ways that I can uh, bring that into my life as well. Um, so it's like, you know, you got a busy schedule. I got a busy schedule. But if I, you know, if I, if I twist your arm and say, we're going to do a podcast together, I can, I could literally have you for an hour of focused time and we can just, you know, go deep in conversations and we don't have to get, you know, book a dinner and we don't have to sit there with, it's like a conversation like we had today. If I went out to dinner with you, you would feel like, dude, why are you interviewing me? But if I'm (laughs) interviewing you. You're like, well, he's interviewing me. (laughs) You don't. That's true. Yeah, I think the big difference is I I have like you know 50 questions for you, so you only gave me one. But uh, yeah, I think (laughs) we'd have a hell of a dinner, and and, uh, so yeah. Well, then I will. I will agree to either come on your podcast when you have one, um, or uh, I'll go out to dinner when we come out to Orange County, and and I will uh, I will sit with a mint julep and let you ask me whatever you want. That sounds awesome. Well, Shane, uh, this was um, absolutely exactly what I thought it was going to be. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Uh, No, not at all. I mean, other than, you know, if you're into um, products of inherent quality and and you want to check out our California heirloom design, uh, go to leisuresociety.com. It's a family-owned and operated business. My wife uh, is one of the best publicists in LA, and she runs our PR. If... uh, 
uh, if our accounts don't pay, my uh, my old man calls them and my kids are working here after school and uh, most weekends. So yeah, family owned and operated. And I think we make some of the best product in the world. I know that we do. And uh, yeah, I'd love for your listeners to explore what we do. That's awesome. So your uh, your your wife makes you look pretty, and your your dad is the muscle. Yeah, I love he it. He is. He's he's seventy six years old, and our our accounts love him so much. I mean, we sell um, you know eyewear stores and boutiques uh, globally, and then it's like, oh, your dad called me last week, and he's the he's the guy that uh, collects the money. He's like, hey, I need a little help. You know, there's help. a pandemic going on. Yeah, your times are tough right now. Shane, thanks <laughs> totally. for everything, buddy. Thanks, Rob. I really enjoyed it. Have a good one. And I look forward to uh, meeting you in person at some point in the future. You too, buddy. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 